And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 29. Genesis 29. Well, yesterday, um, I was at the gender reveal party for the unborn child of uh, Justin and Claudia. Uh, Hi, guys. Uh, When we all discovered uh, that you'd be having a baby girl, congratulations with that, very exciting. And uh, they are naming her Catalina. A uh, beautiful, beautiful name, and I'm sure that they put a lot of thought uh, into coming up with that name. Most parents do. Now, I know, I know that often today, and I, maybe this isn't the case for you guys, Justin and Claudia, but, but I know that the main reason why many parents in America land on a name is because it sounds cool, and there's, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Dana and I had no deep reasons and no deep rationale for why we named our kids what we named them. It just had a nice ring to it. And, and, and by the way, it's, just, it's, an, it's, no, it's an accident that our kids' names are alliterated. Ethan, Ella, and Elijah. That, we're not that clever. That, it just kind of turned out that way. Now, while we're certainly interested in the names of our own children and the names of, of the children of people close to us, let's be honest, um, we can be less interested in names when we are reading the Bible. Uh, especially when we come to a section uh, uh, like what we're going to be reading about today, uh, where we have baby after baby after baby after baby and name after name after name. And for some readers, these parts of the Bible can be boring. And we're thinking, what is the point of all of these names? But in the Bible, names are of immense importance and can give us uh, clues about the story or the person that we're reading about. For several weeks now, we've been focusing on the man Jacob, whose name carries the meaning of supplanter or deceiver. And Jacob indeed has lived up to his name. Uh, but God has begun to teach Jacob some hard well-deserved lessons as this man who is named deceiver begins to reap the fruit of the life that he has sown. Uh, Last week, we saw that due to the scheming trickery of Laban, Jacob finds himself in an utterly miserable situation, sharing a home with two wives, one he loved, one he didn't, uh, both women hating each other. Uh, He's trapped in a brutal, unfair service under Laban's cruel thumb. Uh, Jacob now knows what it's like to be exploited and taken advantage of, and God's going to use this difficult time to shape and mold this man's character into the kind of person that God wants him to be. Now, with these two wives will begin to, to come babies, and with babies' names. And at first glance, this long list of strange names has no obvious relevance to us. They seem to be just historical footnotes, but that's not the case. These babies aren't named as they are because the names sound cool, as cool as Zebulun sounds. No. Uh, The scriptures say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and these names that are coming forth out of the mouths of these desperate wives is giving us a window into their hearts. What's more, these names are not just important in the small context of Genesis 29 and 30, but also of immense importance in the larger context of the big Bible story. God has something to say to us through all of these names, and I pray that we will hear what the Spirit has to say to Harbin's Community Baptist Church this morning through this word. So with that said, please stand with me one more time out of honor and reverence for the reading of God's precious and perfect and inspired word. We are in Genesis 29. We're going to start in verse 31, and then we're going to read on down through chapter 30, verse 24. 
hear the word of the Lord. When the Lord saw that, that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he's given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben found, went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to her mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, that he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came, out from the, came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Let's pray. Father, give us help this morning as we spend time meditating on your word. Father, there is nothing that I have to say to these people this morning that is more important than what you have to say. 
So, Father, guide me. Guide my thoughts. Guide my teaching. And please help me to rightly divide the Word and help my friends here to rightly hear Your Word, that we may be blessed by Your Word, for man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Jacob never thought his life would be this way. I can imagine that there were times where he just had to leave and be alone in the wilderness, away from the quarreling wives. And in those times alone, I'm sure he must have reflected back on that glorious night that we read about in chapter 28, many years before when he encountered God at Bethel, where God had given Jacob promises, promises of blessing, promises of his presence, promises of protection, and a promise that Jacob would be the one through whom God would fulfill his glorious plan to overthrow the forces of darkness that held the world in its grip for so long and bless the entire world. And I can imagine Jacob in his most discouraged moments thinking so much for a great nation and blessing. My wives and I can, can't even manage our own home. How, how can we, this ragtag, patched together, messed up and broken family, bless anybody else? Well, Genesis 29 and 30 begins to answer that question. And as we explore this passage... Let's remember that though in Jacob's day polygamy was legal and polygamy was culturally acceptable, it was not right. God in chapter 2 already set the standard on marriage and he designed it to be for one man and one woman united together for life, no matter what people say today in our culture. And in our passage today, we're going to see the bitter fruit that comes when man attempts to subvert God's design and do things his own way. Now, on the other hand, yes, the story that we have just read is ugly. Yes, it is messy, but God. God is still working behind the scenes. Well, there's a few things that we see in our text today, and the first thing I want us to consider is an unloved wife, an unloved wife, Leah. Verse 31 says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Now, that word hate there does not connote murderous emotion. We, we, we may kind of read our own modern understanding of, of hate here. Really, it's more about rejection. Uh, Leah was never the one that Jacob wanted, right? Uh, from the very beginning, he was in love with, with Leah's younger and more beautiful sister, Rachel. Uh, in, in Jacob's mind, Rachel is his true wife. Rachel is his true choice. And he deemed that it would be through his union with Rachel that God's great redemptive promise to bless the world would be fulfilled. And Leah, and Leah knows this. And you can imagine the, the loneliness and the heartache that Leah felt. It must have been crushing. It must have been overwhelming. But the immediate thing that the author Moses wants you to recognize is that while Jacob rejects Leah, God pays attention to her. Verse 31 says that God opened Leah's womb. He made her fertile. And why? Well, verse 31 tells you. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. God sees this sad, lowly estate that Leah is in, and he is moved with compassion, and he is moved with pity, 
and he acts. Now, throughout the scriptures, we consistently see this ongoing theme of God's special concern for the rejected, for the unloved, for the lowly, for the despised and downtrodden, uh, the, the ones that others pass over, the ones that others turn away from. And, and, and we see how God sees the grief and the pain of his people, and he is moved to draw near to them. As the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now, now someone might say, but isn't, isn't Leah kind of getting what she deserves here? Uh, yes, Laban was the ringleader behind the deception of Jacob, but Leah had, had to have some level of complicit, uh, complicity in this to pull off the scheme, right? Uh, uh, she, she could have revealed her identity. She, 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 uh, she could have not spent that first night with him in his tent pretending to be Rachel. She could have pulled back that veil and said, I'm not the one that you want. Well, that all may be true. But if it is, this then highlights all the more God's grace and compassion. Because we see here that God's special concern for the unloved and the rejected isn't reserved for the squeaky clean and the innocent. Instead, his pity is aroused even if the person has in some way contributed to the current mess that they're in. And that should bring great comfort and hope because we often think that God is harsher than he actually is. Like God's just sitting up there in heaven, and he's just looking down on you, and he is waiting for you just to do one little thing wrong, and then boom, with glee, just smashing you without mercy every time you mess up. And while we deserve to be smashed, for sure, the Bible reveals that God is more kind and more gracious than we could possibly imagine. God's not like us. Somebody crosses us, boom, we are on it. And we cut them off. God's not like that. And, and this is good news. This is good news for you. If you, if you feel like your life is just an, an utter mess right now, and, and, and you know that the pain and sorrow you're going through is at least in part because of your own doing. And while it is true that God disciplines his children because he knows we need that, we often forget that he's tenderhearted and he's compassionate in his dealings with us. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Boy, that's great news. John Calvin writes that Jacob's extravagant love for Rachel was corrected by the Lord. Leah should have received honor and love from her, from her husband, and if Jacob would not provide it, God would. So God shows compassion. And in verse 32, Leah names her son Reuben, which means something like, see, a son. And she says, the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. How heartbreaking and how sad. And her comments reveal that she's celebrating the birth of the son, not exclusively for the son's sake and not for the Lord's sake. Instead, ultimately, Leah's hope here is that both the Lord and the Son will be the means to get what she really wants. And what does Leah really want? She wants Jacob's acceptance. She wants Jacob's love. Her desire for that dominates her life, and that's going to become increasingly clear as we go through the chapter. Though on the one hand, she acknowledges God's blessing. On the other hand, Reuben's name also seems to be pleading with Jacob, see a son, notice me, love me favor me. Now, of course, it's not wrong for a wife to want the love and favor of her husband. She should want that. 
But even while the Lord's name is on her lips, we at the same time see that her husband's approval emerges as the aim and desire of her life. It's the thing that she regards as essential for meaning and worth. Sure, the Lord has looked on my affliction. That's great, because now it'll get me this, my husband's love. That's the goal. That's the end game in this. So while we should certainly have compassion on Leah's difficult situation as the Lord does, we should also recognize the beginnings of an idolatrous craving that's dangerous for her soul. And it should serve as a warning to us because every single person in this room can identify with Leah. Uh, We know what it means to have idolatrous cravings. Are there false gods in your life that are seeking to capture your heart above anything else? Maybe you acknowledge God, But if you are truly honest, in your heart of hearts, you know that sometimes God isn't the end as much as he becomes a means to an end, uh, to that thing that you actually desire more than him. While Leah's idol was Jacob's acceptance, some of you in this room may have other idols, idols of physical health. If only I could be healthy. Financial security. Being accepted by others. Uh, Maybe it's control. If I can just control certain things in my life. Or or maybe the idol is a stable, picture-perfect family. Maybe it's having the right girlfriend or the right boyfriend. Or maybe it's a certain ministry that you feel called to. It can be a whole host of things. Many of those things good in and of themselves. But but our idols are anything, even good things, That's the tricky part about idols, by the way. Uh, Even desires that are good can swell to enormous proportions and can displace God from the center of our hearts, and they can become larger than life. Our idols are anything that we ultimately bank on to fulfill our hopes for life and peace and satisfaction. For Leah, it's Jacob. And with this firstborn also probably comes the hope in Leah's heart that it won't be Jacob and Rachel, but Jacob and Leah and their firstborn Reuben that God's covenant promises would be fulfilled. And so she is convinced that because of this baby, finally her longings will be satisfied. She says it with confidence, doesn't she? For now my husband will love me. But her heart's longings are not satisfied. And as time goes on, verse 33 says, She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Now, uh, the the name Simeon sounds like the Hebrew word for heard. So in these first two children, Leah acknowledges that God has seen and heard her. And her desire, of course, is that through this, Jacob would also see and hear, but he doesn't. So we come to verse 34. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi, which sounds like the word for attached in the Hebrew. And that's her heart's desire, that Jacob would finally be attached to her. Not her, but me. And notice this time she doesn't even mention God. It's all about Jacob. And yet after these After after three sons, Jacob still does not show her favor. Leah's desires are still not being satisfied, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Because it's only when the Lord denies us those things that are competing with him for supremacy in our hearts that we can begin to be weaned off of the things we want and instead lay hold of the one thing that we truly need. 
Bruce Waltke writes that Leah must learn to find her emotional fulfillment in the Lord's grace alone. And you get the sense that perhaps between the third and fourth sons, that Leah is beginning to learn that lesson. You get down to verse 35, and she bears another son and says, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she calls his name Judah. I bet you'll never guess what Judah means. It means I'll praise the Lord. Yeah, you're learning a little Hebrew here. And, and, and so in this moment, the unloved wife is able to transcend her distress. We see a breakthrough here for Leah. While Jacob still does not love her, this time she will praise the Lord. And here Leah stands and is an example to all of us who have unfulfilled desires and hopes and dreams that nevertheless through the pain we can still praise and we can still cling to the Lord relying on his grace through our affliction. Well, while it seems that Leah's heart is moving away from idolatry, let's check in on Rachel and see how she's doing. And we turn our attention next to a childless wife. A childless wife, Rachel. <clears throat> Text says, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Now, on the one hand, as we, we had compassion on Leah, I think we should have some compassion on Rachel. In the ancient Near East, to be barren carried a huge cultural stigma. What's more, remember that in the very beginning, it was all about Rachel and Jacob. Uh, she was chosen by Jacob and not Leah. But on the other hand, her envy is a sign that something is going wrong in her heart. And you can imagine that as Leah has child after child after child, Rachel is getting more and more and more desperate as she sees her favored status in the home in jeopardy. She was supposed to be the matriarch of the covenant family, not her sister. She was supposed to be part of God's plan to bless the world. But how can she do that under the curse of barrenness? And so in verse 1, she cries out to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. As if it's Jacob's fault. We know nothing's wrong with Jacob because Leah's just cranking him out. Sorry. <laughs> Leah isn't the only one in this household who is entangled by idolatry. Not, not that there's anything wrong with wanting to have children. But again, when a desire, even a good desire, begins to take center stage in your life, you're in big spiritual trouble. And the sin of envy, the sin of envy is the fruit of idolatrous lusts. Give me children or I shall die is another way of saying life isn't worth living if I can't bear children. I can't live if my sister has supremacy over me. And Rachel's hopes for life and meaning and identity is hanging on childbearing. And she deems her life worthless otherwise. And so again, I ask you to examine yourself. And ask yourself, is there something other than God that your identity is bound up in? Is there something that if, if it were denied you, you would feel like life is not worth living? Uh, is, is there envy creeping into your heart? Uh, where there are things that you want that someone else has maybe, and instead of rejoicing with them about those things, it stirs up in you a desperate anger. If you can identify that thing, you found your idol. Does your, does your heart make demands of God or demands of others saying, give me X or I'll die? You fill in the blank. Give me the kind of life that I want. 
give me the kind of relationships that I want, the kind of safety that I want, the kind of security that I want. Give me the thing that he has or she has that I think will bring me happiness and security, and if I can't have those things, then what's the point of living? And by the way, there are fewer ways that you could insult God more than to have those kinds of sentiments in your heart. Because you're essentially saying, if I can't get this thing that I so desperately want, if in the end, all I have is God, that's not sufficient. That's not sufficient to meet the deepest needs of my soul or or to give me life, to give me meaning, to give me worth. I've got to have this other thing instead. Now, folks, we would never say that explicitly. But when we desperately grasp and cling for our idols, that is exactly what we are saying. It's interesting and sad and ironic that both women in this house wants what the other has. Ever think about that? Leah has children, but not her husband's love. Rachel has her husband's love, but not his children. And both of them are miserable. And and misery... This kind of misery always is the fruit of idolatry because while we're running towards the thing we think will give us ultimate meaning and happiness, we're also running away from the only thing that can satisfy the deepest cravings of our soul. That's why the prophet Jeremiah compares idolatry to turning away from the fountain of living water and instead making broken cisterns that can hold no water. The idea there is that God is the fountain. God is the one who satisfies. And the idols of our hearts are the useless broken cisterns Uh, cisterns that can never satisfy our soul. They're empty. Only God can bring us that kind of satisfaction. Well, uh, Rachel rails at Jacob. She says, give me children or I'll die. And how does Jacob respond? With kindness, with tenderness, with godly spiritual leadership, with living in his wife in an understanding way, as 1 Peter 3, 7 tells us to do? No. No. Verse 2 says, he responds with anger and says, am I in the place of God who's withheld you from the fruit of the womb? Now, on the one hand, Jacob is exactly right. This is good theology. He, He rightly reminds Rachel that there's nothing that he can do about this. God is sovereign over the womb. He's sovereign over, over life. God's the author of life. But Jacob's anger here is not right. It wasn't good spiritual leadership. Better for Jacob to have responded with kindness and compassion. Even better to have responded with prayer. That's what his father Isaac did when his wife, Rebekah, was barren. Isaac prayed for his wife. But not once in this chapter does Jacob pray. The the wives pray. But we never see Jacob on his knees. His responses in this whole chapter express spiritual passivity and and spiritual immaturity and a lack of godly leadership. In verse 3, when Rachel orders Jacob to take her servant girl Bilhah as another wife and have her children count as Rachel's, Jacob just passively goes along with it. He he doesn't say, well, no, no, let's let's go to the Lord. No, this is is not right. He He just listens to what she says. And, and, and this practice of, of these surrogate wives who are just virtual baby factories, it's kind of demeaning. It was legal in that culture, but again, sinful in God's eyes. 
and demonstrated a complete lack of trust in God. But Rachel's desperate to have children at all costs. That's another sign of idolatry, by the way. When you're so desperate for that thing that you want, that that even if you have to sin to get it, well, so be it. I want this. I need this. I got to have it. No one's going to stand in my way, not even God. And when you're at that point, you're in a very dangerous point. And so, again, I wonder, is there something in your life that you are so desperate for that what God says in His Word doesn't matter? You, You want what you want. That's all that matters. If there's something like that in your life, you've just found a false God that is controlling you and bringing great harm to your soul. So for, Jake, uh, for, for Rachel, it's full steam ahead, irregardless of consequences. And in, in verse 5, Bilhah conceives and bears a son and names him Dan, which sounds like the Hebrew word for judge, because Rachel feels vindicated. And then in verse 7, Bilhah gets pregnant again. And in verse 8, Rachel says, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali, which sounds like, you guessed it, wrestling. And there are echoes here, aren't there? There, There's some things here that are beginning to sound familiar. This this theme of wrestling now is coming back, right? As as Jacob wrestled with, with Esau for dominance and supremacy in his household, now he sees these kinds of sins of his past coming to root in his own home, in his own household, as these two women now are in a bitter rivalry and wrestling against one another. Uh, Rachel sees herself locked in an intense battle with her sister, and so what we have here is the beginnings of a little baby arms race. That's my next observation. Uh, we have a baby, baby arms race. Leah and Rachel are involved in this. I grew up in the, in the 80s during the Cold War and the nuclear arms race between the Soviet Union and the United States. Both sides were stockpiling weapons in, in order to gain the advantage over the other. Oh, well, you got a missile, I got a missile. Oh, you got a bigger missile, I'm going to build an even bigger missile. That's, that's what it was like. It was fun times in the 80s. And, uh, and, and here, what we have is another kind of arms race. It's a stockpiling of babies as each sister will try to outdo the other. And as in all arms races, there's escalation. We see that in verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. This is woman number four now in the home. This is disappointing because it seemed like in verse 4, Leah was beginning to move away from her idolatry uh, with the birth of Judah. This time I will praise the Lord. But you know the thing about idolatry, (laughs) you've got to be vigilant in your battle against it. You can tear down the idols that are in your heart, and if you are not careful, if you're not cultivating your desires towards the things of God, guess what? You're going to find yourself building up those same idols again, because idols never go down easy. They're like vampires. They're hard to kill. Leah was fine when the score was four babies to zero. But now that Rachel has cut the lead in half, those old insecurities and fears pop back up again, demonstrating that those idols hadn't been totally rooted out of her heart. And so now Leah, too, is willing to sin, to get what she wants. And she gives her servant Zilpah to Jacob. Hey, if it worked for my sister, it'll work for me. I'll use her as a tool so I can get more babies. 
Now, this, this frantic desperation on the part of both wives to have children at all costs, even sinful costs, shows that they're being ruled and controlled not by a trust and love of God, but by insecurity and fear. Those are the things that are driving these women in this passage. Insecurity and fear. By the way, those are two things that are always present when an idol is ruling your heart. And in verse 10, she bears a son, which will count for Leah. And in verse 11, she says, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Now now notice the decline of Leah here. In the beginning, at the naming of her earlier children, she would in some way give some sort of acknowledgement to the Lord. God has seen, God has heard, this time I will praise the Lord. But now all good theology is out the window and she names her latest baby Lucky. (laughs) Essentially, right? Good fortune. God God is... uh, uh, God is not dominant in her mind as before. All she can think about is increasing the score over her sister. Verse 12, Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Again, unlike the beginning, no mention of God here, just in anticipation of how she will be esteemed in the sight of other women. She'll get more likes on her Instagram page. Kent Hughes imagines Leah reciting a little poem. Bye-bye, Rachel. I'm leading six to two. Fortune is smiling on me, not on you. What a wonderfully happy home. And just when you think it can't get worse, it does. In verse 14, Leah's firstborn, Reuben, who is probably about five years old around this time, finds some mandrakes. And in the next few verses, we enter into this bizarre negotiation between Leah and Rachel over this plant. Now, uh, in the ancient world, mandrakes were considered special. Uh, They were believed to be both an aphrodisiac and a fertility drug. They were even called by some love apples. And when Rachel, Baron Rachel, realizes that her sister is in possession of some mandrakes, she wants them. And she asks for them. And Leah's response is telling. Verse 15, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Gives you a little insight into Leah's bitterness. She says, no way. You have my husband's heart, but I'm going to keep bearing him children, not you. But then Rachel does what any shrewd daughter of Laban would do. She makes a deal, a little business arrangement. How about this, beloved sister? If you give me the mandrakes, you can have Jacob tonight. A little hint there maybe that that Rachel controls the schedule. I don't know how else to put it, but it's an ugly, sad situation here. But Rachel really believes in the power of these mandrakes because she's willing to trade away time with her husband to secure them. And so in verse 16... We're told that when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. How wonderfully romantic. <laughs> Jacob's you know, working hard all day in the field, coming, coming home. She just runs out. Not, not, not even any preamble here. I've made a nice dinner. You know, put up your feet, relax, take it easy. None of that. It's sad. It's sad. The intimacy of the marital union, which has already been cheapened just due to the polygamous situation, is further debased, where Leah speaks of Jacob as one she has hired. 
It's horrible. And it's poetic justice as God continues to discipline Jacob and teach him some hard lessons because this is actually the fourth commercial exchange in the account of Jacob. The first was in chapter 25 where we have the exchange of the birthright over a bowl of stew between Jacob and Esau. The second was in chapter 27 where we see the exchange of the blessing where Jacob tricks Isaac. The third exchange is in chapter 29 where we see the exchange of wives, Rachel for Leah. And here in the Mandrake incident, we see the exchange for the husband's intimacy for Mandrakes. And what's interesting is that in the first two exchanges, Jacob is the victimizer. And in these last two, Jacob is the victim. And so, again, what you sow, you will reap. And so, Jacob is really dehumanized and really debased and He's reduced to nothing more than a breeding stud. It's exactly what idolatry does. When there's something you desperately crave and and that has replaced God at the center of your heart, you will do whatever it takes to satisfy that idolatrous craving uh, uh, to, to get what you think you need. And so not only does God become a means to an end, but so do other people. In spite of all this ugliness, verse 17 says, And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Now, this is important because who relies on the mandrakes? Rachel. And who has no mandrakes but praise? Leah. And who conceives? Leah. Rachel like her father Laban, is resorting to schemes and and, and human tactics and ingenuity to get what she wants, and she comes away empty-handed. And and God shows his favor again to Leah, and all Leah has is, is prayer, and that's enough. Over the past several chapters, there's been lots of scheming, lots of machinations, lots of manipulations going on, and yet the constant point that's being made over and over again is that God is in control. It's his plans and purposes that prevail, not ours. And so Leah conceives, and in verse 18, names this new child Issachar, which means man of my hire. What a name. Every time she calls that boy's name, it's a reminder that Leah bought Jacob the night that he was conceived. Leah's idolatry debases everyone, not just her husband, but ultimately these babies who are pawns in an arms race against her sister for the sake of matriarchal supremacy in the home. And then Leah again has a son, and in verse 20 says, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. And she names him Zebulun. She says, now my husband will honor me. But if three sons didn't do it, why, why does she think six sons will? But idolatry is irrational. We just keep pushing and pushing and pushing to get the thing that we want, doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results, which I hear is the definition of insanity. So we've had an unloved wife and a childless wife locked in a great baby arms race, a great baby battle. This has been a very sad and heartbreaking chapter. I'm sure you're ready to go home now feeling encouraged refreshed and ready to take on the day. But I'm not going to let you go just yet, because I think at this point it's time for some good news, which leads to my final point in this message, which is a compassionate God, Yahweh, a compassionate God. 
So after all this time, Rachel is still barren, with no obvious end in sight. And then, suddenly, after, after years of heartache and tears and desperation, Rachel, for the first time ever, finally conceives and bears a son and calls his name Joseph, saying, God has taken away my reproach. Now, what's wonderful about this moment is that Rachel at this point is at an end of herself. Uh, one, one writer aptly noted that the, the beautiful favored wife has given up on her devices. There were no surrogates, no mandrakes. Everything was of God, pure and simple. All she had was her tears and her prayers. And we know she was praying because verse 22 says God listened to her. And God, as he was, as he was with Leah, is now moved with compassion and blesses Rachel. But not only did he listen to her, the text says God remembered Rachel. That does not mean that God had forgotten her, as if one day God's like, oh yeah, Rachel. That's not what that means. Instead, the word remembered is is very important, as it speaks of God's covenantal relationship with his people. And and that word is often used when God sees the plight of his people and he sovereignly moves to act on their behalf in accordance with his promises. And it's noteworthy that for the very first time in this chapter, in response to God's faithful covenant love, Rachel uses the term Lord in verse 24. Lord in all caps signifies the covenant name of Yahweh. Leah had used this name in the very beginning of the story at the birth of her first child, but Rachel hasn't used it until now. Uh, she, she did earlier use the name El, God, uh, which is a more distant term, but now she finally refers to him as Yahweh. And I think in writing this, Moses wants us to see this covenant connection between Yahweh and Rachel. God faithfully expresses covenant love to her, and Rachel receives and acknowledges that. And it seems like this becomes a shift in Rachel's life. There's no more fighting and striving after this. There's no more baby battles. And we never see the sisters contend with each other again. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to see them speaking to Jacob with one united voice. And so it seems that in the wake of her idolatry, Rachel is beginning to learn something that King David speaks of hundreds of years later when he says that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Now, this display of God's covenant love to Rachel leads us to a most surprising twist in this story. Both Rachel and Leah had been locked in this desperate baby battle, in this wrestling match to be first. These sisters desperately wanted their place in the family to remain secure. Who would win the battle? Who would be accepted by God? And who would be rejected? And the surprising twist in the story is that neither sister is rejected. Both women, in difficult positions, used and taken advantage of by their father Laban, both undeserving in their own sin, both of these women are received into the people of God. And the careful reader will notice that this section begins and ends the exact same way. It begins with God seeing Leah and opening her womb, and it ends with God remembering Rachel and opening her womb, because God has compassion on them both and will incorporate them both into his grand plan. There's a lot of sin in this chapter, a lot of messiness, a lot of ugliness, and some undeserving people. 
but none of the sin and none of the ugliness prevents God from working and accomplishing his purposes. No one's flaws, no one's sins hinder God, and even more amazing, God actually uses those sins to accomplish his will. And so while we look at this story from one perspective and we see a lot of messy ugliness, when we take a few steps back, we see the larger tapestry that God is weaving out of all of this brokenness because all of the ugliness that is going on is being used by God in his grace to create something beautiful. These babies that we have met this morning are not just a list of strange names and minor historical footnotes. And they aren't just the evidence of a frustrating baby arms race. They are instead a sign of God's amazing grace to undeserving sinners. And they are the seeds of the fulfillment of God's promise to Jacob that he would become a company of peoples. Two desperate sisters, two lowly maidservants, one sinful husband, and a whole lot of babies become the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what we see going on here, the beginnings of this. From these names comes a nation, and from this nation will come another name, a name that is superior to the names of Jacob's children, a name that is above every name, an offspring to come who will bring blessing to all nations. You see, another great twist in this story is that out of the four women in our passage, it will be through Leah, the unlovely one, the unfavored one, the rejected one whom God will honor and exalt the most through her son, Not her firstborn Reuben, but her fourthborn Judah would one day come another baby. And the angel told that baby's parents to name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves, for he shall save his people from his sin, from their sins. About this Jesus, the apostle Peter declared that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. It is through Jesus that you and I can be rescued from the foolish idolatry that all of us have fallen into. I hope you didn't read this passage thinking, boy, I'm so glad that I'm just not as bad as these people. We're all the same. We're all idolaters. Like Jacob and Rachel and Leah, we too have sought things outside of God to meet our deepest needs. And therefore, we all deserve to be judged by God for the horrendous sin of spurning his love for lesser things. And yet on the cross, Jesus suffered and Jesus died, taking upon himself the penalty of God's wrath as a substitute for sinners so that whoever calls on his name might be saved, might be forgiven and brought into the people of God along with other forgiving, undeserving sinners like Jacob and Rachel and Leah that we might one day be raised from the dead as Jesus was and that we might have a home in heaven with God and his people forever. The same God who graciously dealt with a broken family in Genesis 29 and 30 is the exact same God who graciously deals with every single broken person in this room. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, you need to know that you are an idolater. You probably never expected to be, come to church this morning and be told that, but you are. You're chasing after after other things for life and peace and satisfaction that are not God. And if you continue to chase after other gods, your sorrows will multiply. 
of the things you desperately crave will never truly satisfy you. So I urge you today, turn from your idols and call on the name of Jesus to save and satisfy you. If you shun Jesus now, if you belittle his name now, know that the Bible says in Philippians 2 that God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Your destiny is to bend the knee to his name. Better to do it now freely as a recipient of his grace than to do it later as a conquered enemy facing his judgment. If you're a believer, well, as you know, I hope, even Christians can slip into idolatry. And so I would encourage you to let this text lead you to fruitful self-examination. Ask yourself some questions today, maybe some hard questions. What are those things that have captured your heart uh, and they loom larger than God in your life? Uh, Maybe they're even in and of themselves good things, but they've become the ultimate thing for you. And that's where you have slipped and fallen. Uh, The call for you right now is to repent of those things. Tear down those idols. Your hope can't be found in lesser things. Your only hope now and forever is found in the name above all names, in Jesus. So turn to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your holy and inspired word. And Father, we thank you that you have given the world a name that we can turn to, a name that we can put our trust and our hope in, a name that is above every name, a name that with it comes authority and power and salvation and freedom and grace and mercy for your people. Father, my heart's desire is that every single man, woman, boy, and girl in this room would place their hope in that name, now and forever. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.